and welcome to another episode of Nerds Amalgamated. I am the DJ, and I have with me the Professor. Hello, DJ. How are you going? I'm going good. Going good. It's such a hot day today, isn't it? It's bloody awful. Summer's hit, and I don't like it. <laughs> oh, Professor! If only we had we had such a thing as a weather machine. We could we could turn this we can turn this into another winter. I mean, I'd move to Iceland, except global warming's <laughs> going to mess that one up too. <laughs> Actually, Iceland's probably going to get colder. Oh yeah, yeah. Because the the Gulf Stream is going to shut down. Although, mind you, the, the, the penguins will love. You will see more and more penguins over there. You know, penguins don't live in the northern hemisphere. Ah, really? No, they don't. It's always the it's always the south. It's always the damn south. That's why there has never been a case of a polar bear eating a penguin in the wild. Even even in the water. Yeah. Because polar bears and penguins never cross paths in the wild because polar <laughs> bears only live at the North Pole, penguins only live at the South Pole. <laughs> oh, not entirely true. They live, you know, up the coast of the Southern Hemisphere countries. Uh, I found an interesting article that here that says uh, a polar bear's favorite meal is seal. Occasionally, a polar bear may may eat or uh, may eat a whale, but it never eats a penguin. It's the age-old truce between the species. The penguins <laughs> rule the south. The polar bears rule the north. <laughs> so well, let, let let me guess. Uh, Sir George Polar Bear. Sir George Polar Bear came. Uh, decide to grow a, an iceberg and say I'd never tell a lie. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> so bad I can't even follow one from that. What's our topic? <laughs> so speaking of all things crazy in in in, in nature, there's some crazy stuff going on in the science world, such as the bio kidney. Can we rebuild him, DJ? <laughs> we can, and we have the money for it. Just not six million. You know, you're not, mate. We're lucky if we have six bucks between us. <laughs> but but seriously though, how much does this uh, bio kidney cost? It's still a prototype by a company called Kidney X. <laughs> kidney X is a public-private partnership between the Department of Health and Human Services and the American Society of Nephrology, nephrology re- relating to the kidneys. Mm-hmm. And they've been awarded a prize of $650,000. No, sorry, Kidney X is the partnership. The winners of the prize are Advance, who ran the Kidney Project. Let's say Kidney X. Wow, that's su- that's such original naming. <laughs> Yeah, so this is a combination of two previous projects that the Kidney Project has worked on. A hemofilter, which filters the blood, and a bioreactor, which is responsible for balancing electrolytes. And now they've squished them together into a package the size of a smartphone, which is an interesting unit of measurement because smartphone covers everything from, you know, the early iPhones, which were small, all the way up to, like, the Galaxy Notes, which are huge. <laughs> Oh man, can you imagine the size of the kidney, the size of a Galaxy Note? Oh, how would you fit that in the, into an average human body? Probably wouldn't be too difficult. You can squish things around quite a bit in there. Mm-hmm. But the key advantage of this discovery or this invention is that it can replace transplanted kidneys. So if you get a transplant kidney, then you're constantly living with the threat that your body will reject it and it will 
stop functioning or you'll get extremely sick. And that's if you can get a transplant kidney to begin with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how long the waiting list is for kidneys, but most organs have months or years on I mean, the short end. Yeah, and it's also depending on what blood group the kidney you um you're in for the kidney. Yeah, and they also like to take body parts from someone closely related to you if they can, because that's less likely for your body to reject it. But either way, you still need to take uh, immunosuppressants for the rest of your life, and immunosuppressants are not the most pleasant drug to be on. Hmm. I've got an int- uh, so you were saying about the waiting list for kidney in Australia. The average time for a kidney transplant two point five years. That's a long time. It is considering you have to go in for dialysis every few days. Yeah, and yeah, you're basically tethered to your local hospital and go in for hours to have your blood filtered, and it's not the most pleasant way to live. So. <laughs> Even if this doesn't fully replace the function of a kidney, if it can get you away from the hospital for a bit, you know, maybe you only need to come in once a month for a full blood clean rather than every week, or if you can go, if you need to come in every now and then to get it replenished, because this uh, artificial kidney actually contains human kidney cells. So it's sort of a mix between a hardware solution and a wetware solution. Okay. You might have heard of the teams trying to make artificial organs by growing uh, human cells in a scaffold. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. So this takes some of those cells and puts them in the uh, kidney filter device, which then filters your blood without triggering your immune system. So So they've just basically made the most ethical... the ethical standard version of a kidney without the whole uh w- without uh destroying uh, like uh without destroying other um like let's say if we try and regrow a, a, an organ from another body you don't have to do that anymore yeah you well you grow the organ using the patient's own cells some of the projects that are looking into that base the scaffold on somebody else's kidney so the idea being that you take a healthy kidney from a donor that might not be compatible with your patient supply the like clean up the healthy kidney wipe out the existing cells and leave a cellular scaffold seed it with some cells from your patient that have been treated to resolve the issue that's causing your patient harm maybe that's uh, putting it through crispr to uh I'm not actually sure what kind of kidney diseases there are actually off the top of my head, but maybe you put it through CRISPR to cure a genetic disease if maybe cystic fibrosis. Not an expert, obviously. (laughs) And then you would feed that and grow it into a full kidney. And theoretically, that's really good. But the uh, project hasn't gotten underway yet to putting it in people, which is kind of important when you're trying to make a transplant. Yeah. And also, the, que- the this is going to open up a lot of interesting questions, like like, like the uh, idea of transhumanism. Oh yeah, this is kind of exciting. So first we replace the kidneys, next we replace the heart oh. and the liver. And the stomach. Stomach. At what point do we stop? How far can we go with replacing body parts before you're not human anymore? I Are think- you still I- human if you're just a brain in a jar? I, I think uh, this this may sound uh, this may sound weird. I think we stop when the male when we reach the male pro- reproductive system. You think the, you're only a human if you have a penis? I mean, for breeding. In, what in, about in, in, women? Are women not humans? <laughs> oh no! You okay. realize what you just said there, DJ? I'm not cutting this. <laughs> no. 
Okay, so you think that you're not system. human unless you can reproduce. Yeah. Let me introduce you to my infertile friend who will punch <laughs> you in the face. <laughs> oh. I don't actually have an infertile friend, so you're safe there, but you get my point. <laughs> but, the, but, yeah, I, 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 this is... This is going to open up a can of worms. <laughs> this is a very difficult can of worms. I think we're a few years away from the can of worms, but it is an interesting question to ask. And also, this will also take this will also take away the uh, the co- remember the concept of spare parts babies. Oh yeah, yeah. Was that ever a thing? Like, I remember that being a big moral hazard a few years back, but I don't think anyone's actually done that. Oh, they been cases there have been cases about it it's there i remember there was a story in australia about it um when i, when I recall it, and that was a big story this was i think it was in the 90s actually yeah there's an article here from washington post in 1990 and then in 2009 yeah actually there's that book isn't that uh my sister's keeper uh you mean my brother's keeper no my brother's keeper is the quote from the bible my uh. sister's keeper is the book about the um which is obviously referencing the quote from the Bible. For context, it's when Cain and Abel have their fight and Cain comes home without Abel and Adam and Eve are like, hey, where's Abel? And Cain's like, am I my brother's keeper? (laughs) So they've taken that and playing with that for the title My Sister's Keeper, which is about a spare parts baby who doesn't want to be a spare parts baby. Yeah, that's right. The saviors... So they renamed it from a spare parts baby to Savior Siblings. It sounds nicer, definitely. <laughs> but this was but, okay. yeah, an interesting moral question philosophically. If somebody has a second child with the intent of having the baby to treat their other child through a, a transplant or a anything like that, can you be coerced into providing a body part? As a transplant. I think that actually ties into an argument I heard about abortion recently, because we're diving right into the controversy tonight. (laughs) But the idea was, can you be forced to give a kidney or a liver or some other body part to save someone else's life? Mm. If you can't, then it's unethical to force a woman to have a baby, which is an interesting way of looking at it. If you're uh, if you're the perfect match for a transplant, nobody can make you give up that body part. But then here's the pro- but then here's the thing: like, would you do it ultra altruistically, or would you- would there be altruism in 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 giving up that kidney? Depends who's asking you. No way. <laughs> oh come on, professor, have a heart. <laughs> I don't know. I've never been in that situation. I hope I never am. <laughs> because it's but, you know giving a kidney is a fairly safe procedure but there's always a risk that in the process of giving the kidney you'll get hurt yeah and, and then you're going through life with one kidney yeah. which is you know 90 percent of the time it's fine but you've also halved your redundancy <laughs> so it, if it, you develop cancer or something in that remaining kidney you're out of kidneys yeah, it, it, uh, funnily enough, it reminded me of The Simpsons when um, Homer decided to donate his kidney to, 
to his dad. It keeps running away every time. What about Interdimensional Cable 2? Oh, yeah. <laughs> when they want to use Jerry's bits as a replacement for the Alien King's heart or whatever it was. Yeah. No, it was a like a public figure, like space buddha or something space gandhi probably more like yeah and then uh and then uh beth was going like what are you serious yeah i enjoyed that subplot oh yeah but but with the with the bio kidney so there's also so this will take away a lot of medical practices that we that's been controversial and and this will basically say like forget all this you can have this my other my worry is going to be let's say they uh they decide they use this procedure and this procedure will cost a lot of money it will it costs a lot of money to begin with oh yeah it'll probably get cheaper over time as they refine the technology oh yeah yeah but then in the meantime how many people will you see do backyard versions of this i don't think we're at that point yet (laughs) that's a a cool cyberpunk storyline but i don't (laughs) think we're at the point where people are doing backyard kidney transplants I think it would also be very hard to make a mechanical kidney in your backyard. On the other hand, you can do at-home CRISPR. There's a, the YouTube channel Fortemporium did at-home CRISPR to create his own line of uh, lactose processing uh, E. coli, I think. I'm not sure actually. No, it was, I think, implanting in his body. But his goal was to treat his lactose intolerance using genetically modified E. coli. It lasted about three months, and he's currently researching ways to make it last longer. But the whole idea of backyard body transplants is literally from the very first cyberpunk story, Neuromancer. In that, the main character goes to a backyard, um, like, backstreet surgeon to have some of his body parts replaced. So this is cyberpunk as hell, and I love it. (laughs) <laughs> I don't love like the bad parts of cyberpunk, but I love the idea of being able to replace my body parts with robot bits. Then, uh, then you will, then by then you'll be uh, achieving achieving immortality. <laughs> Getting there, yeah. The hard also part the, is the brain. I think yeah. you could like the real difficulty with your immortality is the brain because your brain doesn't recover properly. You can replace any other organ that doesn't regenerate, like your kidneys or your stomach or your bladder, and take immunosuppressants and all that. But obviously, the older you get, the worse your body does. There was that Russian scientist who was going to do a body transplant. Like They called it a head transplant, but that's a bit silly, because you kind of are your head. Yeah, I remember that story. They were going to take the head of a guy with... Uh, muscular dystrophy, I think. He had some form of chronic wasting disease and his body was breaking down. They were going to take his head, chop it off, and glue it onto a donor body. It was very controversial and I'm kind of disappointed from a mad scientist point of view that it never went ahead. Oh, that was not intended. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) But it's, yeah, mad science. I love it. It's what's going to be interesting as well is like even with the so this is for this kidney is for a fully formed fully formed adult right yeah yeah so how are they going to so how many surgeries will it take just to like in case as the decades go that they, they have to replace it for age throughout the ages that's, going to be that's already a problem with a lot of transplants 
even the biological ones, they sometimes think to go back and do a knee transplant, you know, 20 years down the line. So I think it's about the quality of life until then. If you can get out of the three-year waiting line to get a biological kidney and then need to come back in 20 years when you might have needed to come back in 20 years anyway and i think the majority of kidney transplants probably occur to middle-aged people so you're likely to only go through one or two of these in your lifetime yeah i don't see that as a negative so this science so the scientists that tried to do the head transplant uh tried to do it with a monkey as well and it supposedly survived the procedure without any neurological injury and was kept alive for 20 hours. Yeah, the Russians also did that with dogs back in the 50s. It's a complicated topic because obviously a dog or a monkey can't tell us how it feels. Uh And if it only lives for 20 hours after, then it's a pretty much failed surgery because 90% of cases where you'd want to do a head transplant, 20 hours, you know, isn't much of a bonus. It is interesting that apparently the... Transplant dogs could respond to stimulus and lived for up to 29 days. So I think it's a technologically possible thing. Ethically, it's not going <laughs> to happen anytime soon. <laughs> okay, the the question is the interesting part is going to be who do you think is who do you think should who would you convince the ethics uh, the the uh, in terms of ethics, the religious people or the the skeptics. That's a good question. I'm not aware of any religious people who would have an issue with a transplant, except for some uh, some groups. Jehovah's Witnesses, I think, Mormons maybe won't even do blood transplants, like blood transfusions. There's a whole lot of religious groups who won't do particular surgeries because they see it as you know messing with. God's plan, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah. And the other interesting thing with kidneys, it's the same problem with uh, amputees as well, because some amputees, whenever you try and uh, put a, put the fake leg on the amputated on the amputated person, it's uh, there. Some some of them would have the uh, phantom pain. I think they call it. I think that's less of an issue for organ transplants because you don't normally feel your kidneys. But that would be resolved with a transplant because the problem with the prosthetic uh, that is that your body doesn't feel the prosthetic. It's there. But as far as your body's mental map of itself, it's called proprioception. It's the ability to know where your body is in space, even if you can't see it. You feel your body part stuck in a particular place, but you can't move it because it's not there anymore and that can cause pain so the treatment is um sometimes to use a prosthetic and mirrors or barriers trick the person into thinking the prosthetic is their body part and then exercise the prosthetic and that will make them feel like they're moving their missing parts i don't think that's a problem for kidneys though Mm, fair enough anyways uh, in the interest of time we should uh move on to another crazy oh i'm liking this one i know i know I know. Well, we have we, we have been at length about this topic, though. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in the meantime, uh, you've got an interesting story about uh, Mario and how there's a movie coming out. And it's a wild fever dream, <laughs> starring Chris Pratt as Mario, <laughs> Charlie Day as Luigi, and Jack Black as Bowser. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
are some interesting um there, there are some other interesting choices like uh, Seth Rogen as Donkey Kong. Yeah, and Fred Armisen as Cranky Kong. <laughs> uh Fred Armisen, I think is the voice of Kevin in Final Space. Uh hang on a second. He has a voice in Final Space. Along with uh, a bunch of other stuff, but that's where I saw him most recently. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I can imagine that's Cranky so Kong with Ke- Yeah, me too. I, I, I can imagine now, like uh, Fred Armisen, Fred Armisen, Ke- Kevin Boyce in in a Myra movie. That'd just be weird. Yeah, unfortunately, but, that's the reckon- only crossover there. <laughs> But what do you reckon Chris Pratt as Mario? I reckon it's weird. Is he going to do a bad Italian accent? <laughs> because there's, you know, the classic Charles Martinet, or Martinet maybe, uh, it's a me, Mario. Is Chris Pratt going to do that? Because a whole movie <laughs> of that I can see being really bad. Or uh, Mario and Luigi just going to have American accents. Because if I recall, the uh, this Mario movie is, is a sequel-ish, I think, if... If I recall, a sequel to the one from the nineties. I think so, but I. Oh second, well, in that case, that one they had bad Italian accents. <laughs> so, hang on a second. It, it says it's the third feature film adaptation of the Mario video game series, following the nineteen eighty six anime film Super Mario Bros. The Great Mission to Rescue Princess Peach and the nineteen ninety three live action Super Mario Bros. Okay, so it's not really a. I don't well, think there's a ever... TV show. Oh, and an Japanese animated Jap- and live action TV show. There's the anime I that see. Was so bad. 1993. Well, we have a bit over a year to get used to this idea. <laughs> I'm not sure it can be good, but it's going to be something. But it does bring it, it. It it's it's interesting how that you're seeing more and more like games related games related stuff going into the movie world like it, this with the success with the success of Sonic and Detective Pikachu recently and plus this is a yeah, 3D I was movie surprised Sonic did so well yeah yeah I, I haven't seen it so I don't know the quality of the movie but it's I thought Detective Pikachu was going to blow it out of the water for sure I mean it did work I did it did work well you know they also did the bad Italian accents in the CDI games <laughs> So I think they're gonna have to do it. This is gonna be terrible, isn't it? Oh, it's an animated. It's it's animated. So that's a, that's one saving grace. I mean, if they did it in a live action in a live action sense, then <laughs> it'd be terrible. Very very terrible. Well, at least we have Keegan Michael Key playing Toad and not Donald Trump's nudes. <laughs> oh no, no, my eyes, my eyes. I'm sorry, I. I had to do it to you. I can't think of Toad without thinking of that quote anymore. It's ruined my life. <laughs> Gee, thanks. <laughs> I mean, I'll probably go and see it. I'm not expecting it to be good, but I'll probably go to see it if it's if movie theaters are a thing when it comes out. Huh. They should be. Everything will be back to normal, right? <laughs> Says who? It won't be a, a, another wave of a pandemic, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Where'd you get I that off from? Now that we're approaching eighty percent vaccinated in most of the Australian states, we're supposed to hit ninety percent overall. I think at the start of December, mm-hmm. I'm expecting Australia to go back to mostly normal soon. Yeah, unless there's a 
Uh, I know Mew was a uh, variant of interest. Let's hope they don't pick up any more. <laughs> oh, come on. You can't fight evolution. We can by getting vaccinated and not giving the virus a place to evolve. Viruses need you more than you need them. A parasites. Yeah, but with this, with, with okay, with this movie, what's gonna trouble me? Like, even though the, even though it is, it's a, it's Mario, Nintendo, Universal, and Universal Pictures. What's gonna concern me is how much you, um, studio interference is gonna be in this one. Yeah, that's a definite risk. Because, <laughs> although no wait, it's not um Universal did did that. I see they've got the rider from Lego Movie 2, which that was pretty good. Not as good as the first, but it was good. I think we've said about all we can about that. I know, I know. Uh, We need more news about this. It's coming out in December 2022. So we have a bit over a year to get ready for this. (laughs) I can't wait for the trailer once it comes out. (laughs) Let's hope it doesn't turn into a a show like what happened when the first Sonic trailer came out. Yeah, I still haven't worked out if that was a genius marketing move or an absolute blunder. I'm I'm going for the latter on that one. Maybe they'll start with the 1990s movie uh, version of Yoshi and then redo it with the proper Yoshi. Oh, that's the thing. There's no Yoshi on this one. Oh, yeah, there's, there's no, no voice Yoshi. for Yoshi. Yeah, Yoshi was a big character in this. Where's Yoshi? Does Yoshi need a voice though? Uh, he does speak a bit. Well, he did speak a bit in a couple of the old Mario cartoon series, if I recall. Okay, I don't remember him speaking in any of the games. I mean, I suppose he does in some of them, but it's only ever been text. I don't think there's any Mario media, well, games that has a speaking Yoshi. He's in the the 1993 movie, and it's awful. <laughs> and there's not to mention the uh not to mention there is the uh Mario Super Show. Oh, so are we gonna bring back the absolute stupidity that Mario is their last name? <laughs> so we have Mario Mario and Luigi Mario. Oh <laughs> Chris Pratt says you're gonna have to put on a lot more weight to do this role. Uh, come, uh this is animated, not live action. You're getting oh, okay. confused. <laughs> yeah, I confused myself. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 as I said, do a magical crossover thing like Super Show or the. No, I don't think the 93 movie had any animation, but it did have that bit where they fall through into Mario World because somehow the game is Super Mario World, but the plumber isn't from Mario World. He's from New York. <laughs> What's going to be interesting that makes is. Sense. Yeah. What's going to be interesting is I wonder how, if they're going to go th- which which Mario games are they going to go through? Let's say if they have the uh, the, the uh, cliche chase where Mario's chasing Bowser, are they going to chase through all the uh, Mario games like Mario sixty four, Mario Nite- Mario Super Nintendo, Mario Game Boy? I think they'll get a lot of points if Peach's Castle looks like it's from Mario sixty four. Oh yeah, but I really don't think there's much more we can say about this. So let's yeah. move along, DJ. Yeah. So um, on to our final topic. Uh, Marvel is going to be uh, Marvel is being dealt with a lot of lawsuits lately. A lot of lawsuits. So the other day, uh, Marvel is suing onto onto full control of the Avengers characters, including Iron Man, Spider Man, 
Doctor Strange, Ant-Man, Hawkeye, Black Widow, Falcon, Thor, and others. Well, the worry is the rights might go back to the estate of the people who created them. Uh And then Mickey might not get all of his money. Oh, no. (laughs) So the suit seeks uh, declaratory relief that these blockbuster characters are ineligible for copyright termination as works made for hire. And yeah, you're right. If Marvel loses, Disney will have to share ownership of characters worth billions of dollars. Oh no, I'm <laughs> going to have to cry myself to sleep on my piles of money. I'm not going to make just quite as many billions of dollars this year as I did last year. <laughs> oh, that would be hilarious. So for uh, context, recently Steve Ditko, the uh, the man who created Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, uh, decided to the estate of that um, of, of that person uh, decided to sue Marvel. And, this, and according to the two respective notices of termination filed with the United States Copyright Office on August 26th, brought the widespread attention by Marvel artist J. L. Mast, uh, Patrick L. Ditko, the Patrick S. Ditko, the brother of Ditko and the current administration of the last artist's estate, is seeking to revoke the copyright over both of the Amazing Fantasy Volume 1, Spider-Man, in which the epitomous wall crawler makes his first appearance, and Doctor Strange. And they're saying here, if successful, Patrick Ditko's termination of Marvel's copyright would not be would not necessarily require the publisher to stop publishing comics featuring the characters, as they would re- still retain the trademark over them, but could see them barred from using any of the elements featured in the two stories. Uh, thus, the elements su- items such as Spider-Man's web shooters or the uh, Amulets of Agamotto characters, including. Uh, so, are we going to have to go back to weird biological Spider-Man? <laughs> oh, I think so. Yeah. So, uh, style. yeah. Oh, and not to mention, uh, include and characters including Aunt May, Uncle Ben, Wong, and the Ancient One, uh, could not be used by Marvel in any comic, film, or other media. <laughs> well, that means. We will never see Uncle Ben in the movies ever again. Oh, no. <laughs> Seriously, we don't need another... another. Why did I nearly say Mario? Another <laughs> Spider-Man origin story. <laughs> we know he's Spider-Man. We know how he gets to be Spider-Man. Get on with it. <laughs> so uh, the logistics of this copyright law is uh, as complicated as it is. Uh, notes in a in an article uh, regarding with the historic battle between the the Sigil Estate and the DC Comics regarding the copyright to Superman, and this is what they wrote: the basic rule for works created and assigned prior to 1978 is that termination can be effective anytime within a five-year window that opens exactly 56 years from the date copyright was originally secured. And it goes on to say, but even if that window is missed. If the work was in renewal term in 1998, a second five-year window opens 75 years after the date of copyright. I want this to happen because <laughs> I've said it before, but I think Disney slash Marvel now abuses copyright. Oh, yeah. Keep ownership over characters that should have gone public domain decades ago. Yeah, and the, uh, off- the copyright office further adds the termination provisions are, and I quote, are intended to protect authors and their heirs against unremunerative agreements by giving them an opportunity to share in the later economic success of their works 
by allowing authors or their heirs during the particular periods of time long after the original grant to regain the previously granted copyright or copyright rights. I mean, I mean, yeah, sure, it could that that could work. But then here's my question: Would okay? Here's my question: If that was the case, why hasn't the uh, why haven't they you why hasn't the kid who did the that suing Nirvana doing this <laughs> using this then? Because it's a different thing. One's a character created by Steve Ditko. One is a photograph of Nirvana Kid, whatever his name is. Yeah, and so with that lawsuit, Marvel decided to uh, <laughs> decide to sue back, saying, uh, "Of course they did." Yeah. Say is saying that uh, they assigned stories to write and had the right to exercise creative control over Liber's contribution and paid Liber a per page rate for his contribution. Any contribution made under their instance or expense readers or respective contributions by the current by the given creator are um, works made for hire, thus rendering copyright termination laws uh, inapplicable. And the publisher further asserts that these cases bear more than a passing similarity to a previous attempt made by the legendary creator Jack Kirby to terminate Marvel's copyrights over his various creations, including Fantastic Four, The Hulk, Spider-Man, Thor, and X-Men. Let it happen. Break up the mouse. (laughs) Seriously, can anyone say Monopoly? (laughs) So, uh, according to the Copyright Act, work for hire is defined as a work prepared by an employee within the scope of his or her employment or a work specially ordered or commissioned for use as a contribution to a collective work as part of a motion picture or audio or other audiovisual work as a translation, as a supplementary work, as a compilation, as an instructional text, or as a test, uh, or as an atlas. If parties express expressly agree in their written instruments signed by them that their work shall be considered um work made for hire so basically that what they're trying to say is if you were to build a pc and i big company decide to sell the big sell your pc idea it's a work for and you try to sue me i can say yeah it's a work for hire in a sense yeah so it all it's all probably going to come down to the terms of the license and contract that Steve Ditko was working under when he created these characters. Yeah, so everyone's now looking so now everyone's looking at ooh, if uh, if Marvel wins what will happen and if Ditko wins what will happen. So we've already spoken about what will happen if Ditko wins, but if Marvel wins this, they said this will be a worrying precedent for copyright termination laws but and also provide Disney with further ammunition to continue in their continuing fight against advancements of their characters onto public domain. Yep, because they don't want that to happen because then they might not make as much money. They might have to create something new. And it's not even like if your character goes public domain, you can't keep using it. There's still ways to use trademarks and copyright on that. Yeah, it, it comes they down just to... don't want any chance that they won't make maximum money. Yeah, it's yeah, that's the thing. It's uh so if if the plaintiffs win, the they they have to share a share the character rights with the co-owners and share the profits, and you know how Disney is with with profit sharing. We do. Yeah. Good to hear though that uh, Scarlett Johansson won her lawsuit, didn't she? It was a set. They settled it actually. Interestingly, okay. so uh, this so 
Oh, yeah, so so the other day, Scarlett Johansson and uh, Disney have settled a breach of contract. Uh, Disney Studios chairman Alan Bergman added, I'm very pleased that we have able to come to a mutual agreement with Scarlett Johansson requiring Black Widow. We appreciate her contribution to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and look forward to working together on, on upcoming projects like Disney's Tower of Terror. Is that a movie? Yeah, yeah. Is it going to be based on the Tower of Terror, right? Oh, I hope not. Like, I hope do they not. have something like that in America? <laughs> well, one can one can only hope. But uh, yeah, the settlement brings cl- uh, for cl- back and forth a PR battle that pitted the the star against Disney and is poised to have dramatic implications for all Hollywood studios. It, uh... Dramatic implications? Oh my! <laughs> I don't know. This settlement doesn't make any dramatic implications, but a couple of tweets, a couple well, of Twitter battles, and it does though. Because the American court system is based around precedent. So when you're deciding a case as a judge and as a jury, you're supposed to take into account precedent about how the previous similar cases were decided. Hmm. So if a particular side wins this case, then it creates precedent that following cases of the same type should be ruled one way or the other. So if Scarlett Johansson won this case, that would set precedent that if any other actor or actress decided to sue Disney for similar reasons, their case would lean towards them winning. But in this case, it, it, nobody won. It was just a settlement, like like nothing well, really... Well, that's a trick. Ah. Because now there's no precedent. Yeah. Although, mind you, the, the interesting precedent is Johansson's the only movie star that has decided to sue him. I mean, you haven't seen Gal Gadot go over to Warner Brothers and go, hey, you guys, I, I want my money. Maybe Gal Gadot had a better contract with Warner Brothers then. Hmm. Maybe uh, the contract that she had had a provision for what would happen. Maybe she's already sorted it out with them. Hmm. Just because it doesn't go to court doesn't mean it hasn't been dealt with. Yeah. Maybe she actually just wrote to them and said, hey, I'd like this to happen. And they weren't horrible about it and said, sure. <laughs> I doubt that happened, though. Yeah. Uh, so here are some interesting details. So the complaint, uh, it was the complaint was asked, why would Disney forego hundreds of millions of dollars in box office receipts by releasing the picture in theaters at a time when it knew the theatrical market was weak? rather than waiting a few months for the market to recover. The complaint asked on information and belief that the decision to do so was made at least in part because Disney saw the opportunity to promote its flagship subscription service using the picture and Miss Johansson, uh, thereby attracted a new paying monthly subscribers, retaining existing ones and establishing Disney Plus as a must-have service and an increasingly competitive marketplace. I mean... Pretty simple. They used her for marketing the Disney platform. She didn't get paid as much as she would have if it had gone to cinemas because her contract probably said you get 10% of whatever it makes in cinemas. It never made anything in cinemas, so you're not getting paid. <laughs> have fun. Oh, yeah. It, uh, it earned That's about... the problem with these sorts of contracts. <laughs> yeah. It's you funny, need though. them, but yeah. a company like Disney will take any loophole they can get to not pay you. Oh, yeah. And here's the interesting thing. Black Widow, while it's earned $379 million at the box office, and it debuted at the same time at the theaters at Disney+, Plus uh, for additional 30 bucks, mind you. Uh, this was viewed by rival studio exec- executive 
executives as a major miscalculation. Disney boasted July 11 that Black Widow earned $60 million via Disney Plus access, opening the door for a fierce crash. Okay. So uh, according to the complaint, Disney's move uh, to, quote, not only increased the value of Disney Plus, but also intentionally saved Marvel, and thereby itself, what Marvel itself referred to as a very large box office bonuses that Marvel otherwise would have been obligated to pay Miss Johnson. Uh, Johansson. That's sorry. exactly what I just said. Yeah. Because it didn't come out in the box office, technically she doesn't get paid. It's Hollywood accounting and it's bullshit. Yep. Yep. It's how they do everything there. Hollywood accounting is literally designed to give them the most excuses not to pay someone they can. Yeah, and there's a, and, and there's a bit, and this case is bringing about the changing the definition of net profit as well. Well, it's changing. That happens. Get with it. Oh, yeah. Yep. So uh, one of the attorneys uh, looking at this case uh, said this, the exception in which there's so much money involved or if there's a level of acrimony that has reached the point of no return and people are going to stand on principle. That statement by Disney confirmed the the latter, but it's still a shocking statement to make. To paint someone as being insensitive and playing the whole you are so out of touch card. You could probably make the same argument about Disney. Yeah, you've been generating millions. They are. Disney are infinitely more out of touch. Oh, yeah. Like, sure, Scarlett Johansson got paid $20 million to be Black Widow. She's not, like, poor. (laughs) She's pretty heavily in the 1%. Oh, yeah. But... She's still the little person compared to Disney. And Disney will do anything they can to squish the little person if it makes them money. And and this what's gonna and as I said earlier, like her loss Johansson's lawsuit is not the first. Is 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 the first, but won't be the last. I mean, Emma Stone is looking to uh, jump into the lawsuits with her with what happened with Cruella. And what's going to be interesting is any future Disney star might uh, might might look at this case and go, "Hey, does my con- does my Disney contract uh, screw me over like this?" I think new contracts will have provision for that by default because the Black Widow contract was made a few years back before COVID was a thing. So I don't think it's a, something they really worry about anymore. It probably has a default settlement option where if you release it on the uh, streaming platforms instead, then you get X percent of that. It's probably not a big deal. Hmm. That note, we should uh, take, we'll take a small break and we'll be back with our shout outs, events of interest, uh, remembrances and famous birthdays. This program is sponsored by whoever can sponsor us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So uh, on to our shout outs. Uh, September 2021, it's the 30th anniversary of Galaga. Uh, well, the European release, uh, as we as we know it, and that this was the uh, sequel to Galaxian, uh, Namco's first arcade hit. Galaga, after the uh, discovering a bug where enemy units would fly off the screen, creator Shigeru Yokoyama Incorporated it 
of, as a feature in challenging stages. In early testing, along although the game was extremely popular, Namco was unhappy with the low income. Yokoyama thought the game's popularity would still generate income, but Namco insisted that the difficulty be increased. Gallagher has been referenced or appeared in several movies and TV shows. The shark Galagadon no no discre oh I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm gonna butcher not this. Good with the Latin. <laughs> not good with the Latin. <laughs> Is uh, named after the, the game. The name of it is uh, Galagadon Nordquiste. Ah, thank you. Is uh, named after the game because it has the alien-shaped teeth. Ah. Did you ever get? Did you ever play Ga- uh, Galaga? Yes, I have. Not on a machine, on an emulator, but I have played it. It was fun. It's addictive, isn't it? Yeah, and it, you can see the sort of the seed for modern bullet hell shooters. It's a very early form of that, and it would be refined through games like uh, the 1940s series. You know, the one where you World War Two aircraft. Oh yeah, nineteen yeah nineteen yeah. 19, yeah, 19, yeah not, wait, was it nineteen forty two? I think there's a couple of them. I think there's a whole series of different years in World War Two. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. The uh... and then there's uh, like. It's an interesting pro- growth and progression. So, so I think you could call Space Invaders the proto bullet hell type game. And then you have Galaga and Galaxian, which let you move on, move around more and have more interesting enemy patterns. And then it evolves into, you know, on and on and on. Maybe I should write a book about that. <laughs> The Professor's History of Gaming. So uh, on the 26th, we passed the 35th anniversary of Castlevania, one part of the Metro Metroidvania genre. Castlevania features vampire hunters and a deliberately cinematic tone inspired by Hammer Horror and Universal Monster movies. In Japan, the game was titled Dracula Satanic Castle, a Konami of America's senior vice president, Emil Hyde. Heidkamp was uncomfortable with the religious name. The re- release coincided with the 90th anniversary of Bram Stoker's Dracula. That was a fun game. Yeah, Castlevania. So they just announced a re-release of some of the classics. Ooh. It's been a long time since I've played them, but I do like playing as, um, I think it's Simon who's in Smash Brothers. Okay. And on the 29th, we passed the 25th anniversary of the US release of the Nintendo 64. Nintendo's first 3D console, the 64 was also the first console to feature an analog stick as the main feature. Console featured hits like Super Mario 64, GoldenEye, Legend of Zelda, and Pokemon Snap. It's crazy that we're now, that was the first sort of first person shooter controller. I think every first person shooter on console can trace its control genetics back to the 64. A lot of genres actually could trace that control genetics back to the 64. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay, here's a here's a question for you. Which one was more painful for you when it comes to uh when it comes to gaming? Uh playing Monopoly or playing Mario Kart 64? I don't remember Mario Kart 64 being that bad. Are you talking because people keep screwing each other with the blue shells? Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, actually, in my friendship circles, uh, there was the Pokemon Party game. No way. That was a bit of a friendship killer in my circles. <laughs> really? <laughs> Why? It's like Mario Party. It it just causes it because 
there's elements of random chance and there's always that one guy who's got tons of practice in it because he owns the game and no one can beat him <laughs> you mean pokemon stadium by the way or is it actually called my no. pokemon party Poke- no i don't remember the name of it but there was a pokemon party game where there were a bit like mario party where there's a bunch of mini games ah uh, okay okay yeah one of them i remember was um you play as deli birds collecting presents um and bringing them back to the drop-off point. And you cl- the player who collects the most value of presents wins. Oh, boy. Do you, okay, so do you, have a, what, do you have a favorite game with the N64, by the way? Um, none that have aged particularly well out of my favorites. Like, GoldenEye is a classic, but it hasn't aged particularly well. The first-person shooter controls the GoldenEye are pretty crap. I know. I mean, okay, with GoldenEye, the, fa- the, the awesome part with GoldenEye was the multiplayer. And how you can make so many challenges out of it. Like uh, me and my me and a friend of mine, when we were playing with the N64, our favorite one would be the proximity mines. Yeah, it was also uh, quite open, and you could do anything you wanted. But the controls were abysmal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Especially going back after we've had good controls. You know, um, the the t- classic twin stick shooter controls have only existed for 20 years a little bit longer maybe same for pc um the pc classic wasd and mouse has only existed for 25 years or a bit more i think the first game to sort of modernize wasd was an aliens game um actually apparently there was a game from 1986 which used the sad and mouse but there were a couple of uh first-person shooters in, well, shooter games in general in the 90s that codified Wasad and Mouse as the shooter control. And then I think, I could be wrong, but I don't think uh, first-person shooters had completely standardized on controls until sometime in the PS1 era. And now everything uses the same basic controls. It's either the PS1 or the Dreamcast, so yeah, you might be right, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'll say my favorite game would either be GoldenEye or Perfect Dark. God, that game was addictive. Yeah, I've heard Perfect Dark is like GoldenEye, but better. Yeah. Never played it though. Yeah. So uh, on to our remembrances. Charles Francis Richter passed away on the 30th of September 1985. Charles created the Richter scale, Richter magnitude scale for measuring the strength of earthquakes in 1935, along with Bino Gutenberg. Richter once said that logarithmic plots are a device of the devil. Uh, Richter and Gutenberg created a seismograph and chose the, the name magnitude as a reference to astronomy. The Richter scale replaced the subjective Mercalli scale and was it, itself replaced in 1979 by a refined moment magnitude scale. It is funny that the Richter scale itself is basically logarithmic, though. <laughs> Oh, ir- oh, irony. <laughs> I mean, maybe they're the tool of the devil, but it's... One heck of a devil. <laughs> it works. Yep. He uh, died at the age of 85 in California. I see uh, here, on- looking it up again, actually, that uh, the log- logarithmic scale was suggested by Gutenberg. Ah. So he obviously wasn't a fan, but Gutenberg was. <laughs> So uh, on to our famous birthdays. On the same day in 1951, Barry Marshall was born. Uh, Barry Marshall is an Australian Nobel Prize laureate in physiology or medicine. Uh, Barry's theory in Heliobacter pylori 
was the cause of peptic ulcers was dismissed by others who thought H. pylori couldn't survive in the stomach acid. Until this point, the prevailing theory was that ulcers were caused by stress and spicy food. After years of work with Dr. Robin Warren and having their research dismissed along with setbacks caused by experimental design issues, Barrett conducted the self-experiment where he dis- where he drank a culture of H. pylori and quickly developed an infection. In 2005, Barry and Robin were awarded the Nobel Prize. That, what a mad lad. <laughs> okay, so I've been doing some research just off topic, back to the games. Uh, <laughs> Nintendo 64 games. Yep. Yes, I am thinking of Pokemon Stadium. Apparently the mini games were in that. Ah. Uh, yes, um, that looks like that's the one I'm thinking of. Okay. But back to Barry Marshall. What a mad lad. <laughs> okay, okay. If, if I were to do an experiment like that, I really cannot see myself drinking culture. I mean... <laughs> yeah, it seems pretty gross. Okay, so he got pretty sick from it. Oh, yeah. I mean, who wouldn't? The scary part would be like, trying to, dig- trying to digest media is not, is not a pleasant experience. Really? Do you know this? I mean, I- I've worked in labs and you try and... Work with, you try, you try, when you're working with media, some of the media smells bad. What they have smell... you been doing putting media in your mouth? No, not media in my mouth. <laughs> I mean, like, I when don't you... believe you. I know what you're like. You've probably been eating it. <laughs> no, e. coli is not a snack. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, like, it, it, like you get like auto, you get like some of the E. coli um, media before they uh, before you put them in a petri dish. Some of the media they smell like oh it's it's really weird it ha- it has that really weird smell. I'd hope Barry would have uh, used media that was slightly more palatable then. <laughs> yeah, but props to him though for 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 uh, for destroying that theory. <laughs> yeah, some way to get a Nobel Prize. <laughs> yeah. So uh, on to events of interest. Uh, three years later, the first nuclear submarine, USS Nautilus, launched. Overseen by Captain Hyman G. Rickover, a Russian engineer who joined the U.S. atomic program in 1946, the Nautilus didn't run under nuclear power until January 17, 1955. The Nautilus was named after the submarine from 2,000 leagues under the sea. Oh, not 2,000, 20,000 leagues under the sea. It was the first submarine to voyage under the geographic North Pole. Towards the end of its service, Nautilus developed vibrations that made sonar useless and made it obvious to observing forces. The nuclear submarines can stay underwater much longer than diesel submarines as they do not require air to run the engines. I would hate to be the crew of that submarine, though. I'd hate to be the crew of the first submarine, because it sank, like, three times with all crew on board. Oh. And then they'd, like, they'd pull it back up, try again, sinks, try again, actually <laughs> manages to sink an enemy ship. On the way home, it sinks. <laughs> so, um, um, come a long way. Although, there is a... A museum in WA that I've been to where you can go into a diesel sub. I don't remember huh? what class it is. And even modern subs don't look like appealing places to be. They're cramped. They apparently developed quite a distinct smell because you're not showering very well since there's limited fresh water. And then there's the chemicals. Um, the oxygen generators apparently have a very distinct smell. 
that takes forever to wash out when you come back to land. Oh, can you imagine being being trapped in a room with Bo all in that in that submarine for hours on end? You get used to it eventually, apparently. <laughs> I guess when you all smell the same, you don't notice. But um, there's a really good YouTube series, Smarter Every Day, did a deep dive, and I'm sure he picked that title just for the pun. <laughs> He got to go on board the USS Toledo, which is a nuclear submarine, uh, Virginia class, and do a tour of it, hang out while they went underwater for a bit. It's quite fascinating, really. And it looks a lot bigger than the one I went on, but still very cramped. So what is it called? Smarter, smarter Every smarter Day? Smarter Every Day. Oh, okay. yeah, so I'll uh, grab a link for you to put in the, um, in the show notes. He's got a series of, I think, six videos about the submarine and how you get on board, how you get off. Not to mention, can you? Not to mention the boredom. Yeah, there's not much to look at. And then we yeah. spoke about it a few weeks ago. But hot racking. Yeah, yeah. You uh, you share your bed with a couple of other guys. When one of them gets out, you get in. <laughs> and on our uh, and for the and for our favorite movie uh, on the thirtieth of September two thousand eight, the nineteen fifty seven film. The Deadly Mantis, released on home video in Spain. A giant prehistoric praying, praying mantis freed from Arctic ice attacks the U.S. military and works its way south. The mantis was portrayed by several models, including a 61-meter high paper mache model with hydro, hydraulic controls. Scaling up a regular praying mantis to a 61-meter-long movie character would result in a 320-ton creature that weighs the same about as a fully loaded 747. The mantis roars from time to time, but mantises don't have the ability to communicate via sound. There's a lot of of scientific mistakes in this movie, (laughs) but to be fair, it's a 1950s monster movie about bugs. There were a lot of those. (laughs) Okay, does it have more flaws than the Armageddon movie or less flaws? Good question. (laughs) Probably more. Probably more? Yeah, I guess. On the other hand, Armageddon's a Michael Bay movie, so... (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But, uh, that's all we have for, uh, this week. Uh, where can they find us, Professor? YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. Follow us on Spotify and everywhere you get your podcasts. We're also on uh, bats.canada.com where we're an archive of our old episodes. And uh, you can also find some new That's Not Canon podcasts such as Pop Violence. So uh, Pop Violence is a podcast about uh, restorative justice and film rev- and film reviews that deliberately intertwine critical perspectives about violence, justice, conflict, and peace. And coming soon, soon, we uh, will be cu- releasing a new show. Nerdful Things. Ooh. It's going to be our new media review podcast in the form of a book club. And the first book club topic is Forbidden Planet. Ooh. I'm so hyped for this. <laughs> Anyways, uh, take care of yourselves, stay hydrated, and time for me to go away now. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.